From the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, this is Great Talks at the APS, a podcast where we ask scholars about some of the most thought-provoking talks given at the society. Since 1743, the APS has hosted the greatest minds from around the world to talk about cutting-edge research, new discoveries, and timeless issues. Listen in every month for a new episode. And now, here's your host, Dr. Patrick Spiro. Welcome to Great Talks at the American Philosophical Society. I'm Patrick Spiro, and on this episode, we're going to talk about atomic weapons, Cold War science, and J. Robert Oppenheimer. My guest, Dr. Martin Sherwin, co-author with Kai Bird of American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer, published in 2005. It was awarded a Pulitzer Prize for Biography, and Dr. Sherwin is a professor emeritus of Tufts University and a university professor at George Mason University. Today we're going to talk about a lecture Oppenheimer gave at an APS meeting on November 16, 1945, as part of a symposium exploring nuclear weapons. Oppenheimer's talk was entitled Atomic Weapons. So before we get started on the talk, I thought I'd ask a very general question. Who was J. Robert Oppenheimer? Oppenheimer was uh, several people, actually, <laughs> uh, providing the long biographical view. Uh, he was a very different uh, young man than the Oppenheimer we came to know. Uh, and the, one of the most interesting things about his biography is how he, in effect, through an act of will, transformed himself from this socially incompetent uh, person into uh, an incredibly uh, attractive uh, personality in every sort of way. This transformation really began when he was in Germany at Göttingen uh, getting his uh, PhD and continued through his uh, early tenure as a faculty member at Berkeley and Caltech and was transformed again when he became the director of the Manhattan Project. So uh, Oppenheimer was a sort of multi-personality person. <laughs> that is something that really came through in your biography. And, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about his early life, um, especially the years that he had in Great Britain, where you discuss him dealing with mental health issues. Because it was interesting to try and reconcile that Oppenheimer with the Oppenheimer that is the director of Los Alamos and called the father of the atomic bomb. After he graduated Harvard, uh, he went to Britain and um, was doing experimental physics work at Cambridge. And he, he just, you know, wasn't cut out for that. His hands and his brain uh, did not coordinate. And I think they had him cutting very precise work with some with slides. And at one point, we discovered that uh, one of his friends uh, caught him writing on the blackboard, the point is, the point is, the point is. And then another one of his friends, uh, Ferguson, once uh, went to his dorm room and uh, heard this moaning inside and opened the door and there was Oppenheimer in a fetal position rolling back and forth, uh, you know, groaning. Uh, he literally came close to committing suicide at that point. Why? For the first time in his life, he was failing at something. He had always been the top of the class, the smartest 
person uh, admired for his intellectual capability by all his uh, uh, classmates, and suddenly he was an incompetent, and he just couldn't deal with that at that point. Um, and what snapped him out of that was his discovery of theoretical physics, of quantum physics. And when he started to read uh, qu some quantum physics articles, uh, he just engaged it. And within a less than a semester, he had already written an article that he submitted to a journal and um, was off to uh, Göttingen. That's when uh, he began to become the Oppenheimer we know. He wasn't there yet, but <laughs> he was on his way. He's known today largely as a administrator, uh, the director of Los Alamos and then the director of the Institute for Advanced Studies. But can you talk a little bit about what he was as a physicist and then what was he working on? Well, he worked on a lot of things. I mean, one of the reasons um, he did not win a Nobel Prize, according to uh, actually many of the people who knew him, uh, was that he was never willing to sort of stay focused on one set of problems, or one area. Uh, he needed to know what was going on and cross the spectrum of the entire field. He was also a polymath. He, uh, he was as interested in poetry and culture as he, uh, well, maybe not as interested in, as he was in physics, but uh, uh, he was, you know, in a sense, all over the place. Uh, one of the things that um, I think it's important to, to recall is that I think it was in 1939, Oppenheimer, with one of his students, uh, wrote the first paper identifying the idea of collapsing stars, a black hole. If Oppenheimer had lived into the 60s or 70s, uh, when it was possible to uh, prove that there were black holes, uh, he surely would have won the Nobel Prize. So black holes was his original idea. I mean, that's quite amazing when you think about it way back in the 1930s. Um, when he arrived in Berkeley uh, at the end of the 1920s and Caltech, he had a dual appointment, uh, he began the process of building the most important American school of theoretical physics, the quantum physics uh, at, at the time. And so how does a 39-year-old theoretical physicist become the director of the nuclear Manhattan Project at Los Alamos? Oppenheimer had never directed anything more complicated than a graduate seminar, which teaching graduate seminars, I can tell you, sometimes actually become complicated. <laughs> but nevertheless, it's not the same as uh, organizing uh, the Manhattan Project. By 1939, 1940s, Oppenheimer had become a very socially adept person. During the 1930s, he had uh, had a lot of experience working with left-wing organizations. And this is often sort of overlooked, except in terms of the political implications that he was hanging around with a lot of communists. Uh, but... He was a very organized person. I mean, he was uh, always the one that people turned to to write a lecture, to write a letter, 
to organize, you know, some event. Uh, he was never a member of the Communist Party, but he was right in the middle of uh, left-wing activities during the 1930s. And I think that was the beginning of his administrative competence. Uh, when General Groves was looking for a director of uh, whatever the laboratory would be, it became Los Alamos, but whatever the laboratory would be where the bomb was actually constructed, uh, the first thing he did was interview all of the obvious candidates. Uh, and those candidates were generally the experimental physicists who were running uh, laboratories, uh, Lawrence, uh, etc. But he was told to talk to Oppenheimer, probably because Oppenheimer asked some of his friends to get Groves to talk to him because Oppenheimer was very interested in getting into the middle of this project. Wait, what, what, what drove him? Well, there was patriotism and, uh, you know, we were, we were at war and most Americans wanted to do their part. World War II was a unique war. It was a war that brought everybody uh, in support. Um, and of course, Pearl Harbor was uh, one reason, but uh, for those people who were um, sort of connected with Europe because they were Jewish or they came from Europe or just because they had a sense of how terrible Nazi fascism you know, was, uh, they wanted to get involved, and Oppenheimer wanted to be involved like everybody else. Um, and when Groves interviewed Oppenheimer, he discovered that uh, this guy seems to understand what I need better than any of the other people that I've talked to. And um, Groves decided that he's my guy, and the security people who worked for Groves were appalled because when they read Oppenheimer's, you know, bio, you know, there's lowest left-wing activity and uh, uh, all these left-wing students uh, who he was, you know, involved with and so on and so forth. So Oppenheimer gets the job. Can you talk about how he did as director of Los Alamos? When Oppenheimer first took the job, he had no real idea of what he was facing. And the first few months, he, he thought, I'm going to bring all these good scientists who I know together, and, uh, you know, a hundred people will get the job done. The first atomic bomb was assembled at Los Alamos, a secret laboratory in New Mexico. When Dr. J.R. Oppenheimer arrived to take charge, he began to surround himself with a galaxy of outstanding scientific stars. And... Robert Wilson, for example, who was a very young but very um, experienced experimental physicist, uh, you know, said to him, look, we, we need an organization chart, and we've got a, an organization chart, come on. I mean, you know, <laughs> we don't run laboratories with organization charts. And um, very shortly, he began to see this project uh, spin out of control, and he did another transformation and became a serious administrative director and put the lab together in um, a very, very effective way. And it, it worked. I mean, it was probably one of the most efficient operations uh, during the war. Every scientist who was there, who I interviewed, 
uh, said that the bomb never would have been ready uh, in August of 1945 under any other director. Um, what did Oppenheimer do? Well, first of all, because he was so smart, uh, he could keep almost everything in his head. Uh, he knew what was going on in the machine shop. He knew what was going on in uh, the theoretical physics division, which was run by Hans Bethe, which, by the way, uh, was the beginning of the Oppenheimer-Teller confrontation because Teller thought that he should be uh, the head of the uh, theoretical physics department, and he never forgave Oppenheimer. It was... Uh, I guess an amazing performance as director and the the fact that he was so central in getting the bomb built is a very, very important consideration when you ask the question about his view of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know, after the war. On August the 6th, uh, the first bomb is dropped. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. And three months later, Oppenheimer uh, delivers a speech uh, to the American Philosophical Society, in which I think he's trying to come to terms with what it is uh, he had created. And so I'd like to play a, a brief clip from that speech and, and hear what you think. What is not contingent is that we have made a thing, a most terrible weapon, that has altered abruptly and profoundly the nature of the world. We have made a thing that by all the standards of the world we grew up in is an evil thing. So here is somebody that's trying to come to terms with what he has created, this powerful but evil thing. Can you talk about how creating the bomb changed Oppenheimer? I think we have two steps here. Um, Creating the bomb was a challenge that fully engaged Oppenheimer, and he never diverted from the objective of getting this weapon created as soon as possible and using it. Oppenheimer was on something called uh, the Interim Committee, which uh, Secretary of War Henry Stimson had organized. And during the meetings in which using the bomb was discussed, Oppenheimer even proposed that the two bombs that would be available be used on the same day, uh, which Groves wisely vetoed as an idea. But as I said earlier, Oppenheimer was in the most profound way responsible for this bomb being ready before the end of the war and therefore being used. And in retrospect, uh, very soon after uh, the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, very soon afterwards, a sense of guilt began to sink in. And his speech at the American Philosophical Society uh, really projects that. He not only says it's an evil thing, but he says it was used against an essentially defeated enemy, which is the line that I think comes after that. And that is something he actually said in print once in 1946, but never again mentioned it. But he understood in the aftermath of the war that it had not been necessary to use 
uh, nuclear weapons in order to bring the war to an end in August of 1945. Uh, he understood that with the Soviet Union coming into the war, the Japanese were going to have to surrender. And so this sense of foreboding, you know, guilt sort of stuck with him. Now, during these discussions about whether or not the bomb should be used and how it should be used, uh, one of the, the critical things that he proposed was that if the bomb was used, it would project to the all governments in the world, but especially the Soviet Union, uh, that it was necessary to uh, organize the international control of atomic energy in order to prevent uh, a nuclear arms race. And without the awareness of how terrible this weapon was, the international control of atomic energy, uh, you know, would not be possible. And so in that speech, he is also arguing that it is necessary for the United States government and other governments to commit themselves to essentially preventing a nuclear arms race, in effect, to save the world that we know and the world we fought for uh, in World War II, a world of freedom, of open cultures, uh, and so on. You know, there's a great um, clip that I want to play now that I think captures that spirit exactly. It is a practical thing to avert atomic war. It is a practical thing to recognize the fraternity of the peoples of the world. It is a practical thing to recognize as a common responsibility wholly incapable of unilateral solution, the completely common peril that atomic weapons constitute for the world. And so Oppenheimer comes out for an open international community to deal with atomic weapons. Can you provide greater context to the debate that's going on? Where does he fall on a spectrum, um, for lack of a better word, left to right? But what, I mean, how are policymakers and scientists, what are the various ideas that are out there at this time for how to deal with nuclear weapons? The question of what role nuclear weapons will play in the post-war world was a question that was asked and began to be answered uh, during, during the war. There's a famous, um, well, maybe it's not famous. Uh, <laughs> there, there's a, <laughs> no, there, there's, there's um, uh, for historians who write about this subject, uh, there's a memorandum called the Hyde Park Memorandum that summarizes a conversation between Roosevelt and Churchill in September of 1944 uh, after the second Quebec conference when Churchill comes to Hyde Park. And they discuss the future of atomic energy. Um, it's a very short memorandum. Uh, they talk about, uh, well, Niels Bohr's idea of telling Stalin uh, about the project is not something certainly that Churchill's interested in. But there's a line in there uh, that goes something like this. Uh, when the atomic bomb is ready, it might perhaps be used against the Japanese after careful consideration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that impressed me about this memorandum is the might, perhaps, 
after careful consideration. Uh, Churchill and Roosevelt understood back in September 44, this was not just another bomb. This, this was something so special that when you talked about it, you have to how to say might, perhaps, after careful consideration. So they were thinking about it as a powerful influence after the war, way back, uh, even before 19, 1944. By early 1945, the scientists at, or even 44, uh, scientists at the University of Chicago were beginning to think about uh, what effect nuclear weapons would have on the post-war world. And of course, they believed it would be profound. Um, something called the Jeffries Report and that was written at Chicago. And then later on at Chicago, the Frank Report, which was uh, written in May or June of 1945, which argued that the bombs should not be used for various reasons. And Robert Wilson uh, at Los Alamos raised the question of whether we should continue to work on this thing after Germany surrendered on May 8th, 1945. And Oppenheimer tried to talk Wilson out of having uh, a meeting about this, but uh, Wilson was persistent. Uh, Oppenheimer, being the kind of director he was, he said, okay, go ahead and have the meeting. And Oppenheimer came to the meeting and made the argument that it was important that the world understand what was coming around the corner, so to speak, uh, in terms of nuclear weapons. Uh, and Oppenheimer's argument uh, carried the day. Uh, and that, too, weighed very heavily on Oppenheimer when he realized after the war that uh, using it in Hiroshima and Nagasaki were not necessary. So this speech anticipates a lot of the uh, activities that uh, Oppenheimer was involved in in trying to uh, promote the international control of atomic energy. And I don't think it's a left or right issue. It's, you know, almost a, a, a separate, you can't put it on a political spectrum. James Burns, the Secretary of State, uh, the bomb is, uh, you know, we're wearing it on our hip and, and if the Russians uh, try to push too hard, we're going to, you know, reach for our atomic revolver. Uh, so I guess that's the right. And Oppenheimer arguing that uh, what we need is an international um, arrangement to prevent a nuclear arms race, you know, would be on the left. The Truman administration uh, is, in effect, pressured by the scientist movement that begins very shortly after the war uh, to uh, uh, initiate uh, plans for the international control of atomic energy. And out of that comes the Atchison-Lilienthal report in February of 1946. Uh, Atchison really didn't know a lot about atomic energy. He just got the job. So he contacted Lilienthal, who was running the TVA, and he figured somebody who could run the TVA knew about it nuclear weapons, which was not true. <laughs> so Lilienthal didn't know about <laughs> nuclear weapons. Uh, and 
when they put their committee together, they, they really did not have any serious expertise on that subject, and they called on Oppenheimer. So the atchison Lilienthal report is really the Oppenheimer report. And um, uh, it proposed uh, various uh, arrangements for the international control of atomic energy. And that was turned over by the Truman administration to Bernard Baruch. Uh, and it became the Baruch Report, uh, which was presented to the United Nations Atomic Energy Commission in June of 1946. But Baruch changed the report in a way that convinced uh, Oppenheimer and Vannevar Bush, the, who had been the head of the Office of Scientific Research and Development, which was the science um, organization that oversaw all the science projects during World War, World War II, that uh, the Soviets, you know, could never accept this uh, because the Baruch Plan turned out to be uh, a proposal that prevented anybody from developing nuclear weapons while the United States kept its nuclear weapons until we were satisfied that things were peaceful enough for us to uh, uh, eliminate our nuclear weapons. You do a, a brief moment of counterfactual speculation in your book. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, do a little bit now, which is if Oppenheimer had had his way in 1945, 46, what would the world have looked like in 1950, 1960? I mean, if we're going to go so far as to say that the international control of atomic energy had been uh, successful, which has to mean that the Soviet Union accepted the idea, I think the world would have been totally different. But that's a huge counterfactual. Uh, the counterfactual that I'm always most interested in is if the bomb had not been dropped. Let's let's sort of speculate on that for a minute. So everything that uh, actually happened sort of happened. The July 16th, 1945 test of the first nuclear device, Trinity at uh, Alamogordo, uh, took place. But the Secretary of Defense, Stimson, uh, let's say, convinced Truman that it was not necessary to use atomic bombs. Um, Stimson had talked to Truman on April 1945 and brought him a memorandum filling him in on the whole Manhattan Project, uh, what was coming. And in that memorandum, he says, this is a weapon that can either save civilization or destroy it. Uh, and he also says uh, the United States, given our role in the advancement of nuclear weapons, uh, is morally responsible uh, if things go wrong. Well, let's say that had carried the day and, and nuclear weapons had not, had not been used. What would have happened after the war? Well, Stimson would have been called before a congressional committee to explain himself. And he would have said what he told Truman. You know, this is a weapon that should never be used. It was not a weapon that we needed to use to end the war. The United States is not Nazi Germany, and it's not a fascist militaristic Japan. Um, we would not do such a thing. Nuclear weapons are beyond the 
pale of civilization. It never, never should be used. Uh, and we're going to, um, you know, give up our nuclear weapons. Well, if nuclear weapons had been introduced to the world as unusable, unacceptable uh, weapons that, as Oppenheimer says, are evil things, what difference do you think would have occurred in the post-war period? I think things would have been very different. Um, Stalin committed the Soviet Union to building its nuclear weapons as quickly as possible, not because he knew that the United States was involved in the Manhattan Project and building nuclear weapons, but because of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So that's the counterfactual that I'm most impressed with. I can't imagine that after the war, once Hiroshima and Nagasaki had occurred, unless the United States was, you know, really sort of giving up its nuclear weapons, um, that Stalin would have um, accepted even the Atchison Lilienthal plan. So one of the other things you note, which is really interesting, is that this moment after, in the, in the late 1940s, science and scientists have really reached an apogee. Um, they are highly respected. Policymakers are looking, and the public are looking to them for guidance. But that changes rather quickly. Can you talk about that moment and its fall? Well, the, uh, I mean, the scientists were called uh, the new priesthood and um, were this amazing group of Martians <laughs> who, uh, uh, you know, had, had invented all of these extraordinary weapons during World War II, uh, and most extraordinary of all, uh, uh, the, the, the atomic bomb. But as the Cold War began to uh, get colder and more dangerous, uh, those scientists who argued or continued to argue uh, against uh, the embrace of nuclear weapons came under suspicion. And Oppenheimer was one of them because uh, while he was part of the government and cooperated and, uh, you know, promoted the ideas of the Truman administration, uh, until October of 1949, when uh, it was discovered, it was actually discovered in September of 49, that the Soviet Union had successfully tested uh, a nuclear weapon. The, uh, the question was, what should the United States do? And Oppenheimer was the chairman of the General Advisory Committee to the Atomic Energy uh, Commission. And on October 28th, 29th, and 30th of 1949, they meet to uh, make a recommendation in response to the suggestion or the argument that the United States should try to build a hydrogen bomb for what uh, someone called, uh, Louis Strauss called uh, the, the need for a quantum leap, the super bomb, yeah, the hydrogen bomb super bomb. Uh, and the General Advisory Committee comes to the conclusion that, you know, not only is are the ideas that Teller has for how to build a bomb not workable, but there's no reason to build a hydrogen bomb because our um, supply of fission bombs, of you know, merely 
atomic bombs, uh, fission bombs, uh, are, is perfectly adequate as a deterrent, even if the Soviets get a hydrogen bomb. And if they get a hydrogen bomb, we'll know it because you can't build a hydrogen bomb without testing it. And as soon as you test it, we can you know, discover uh, that it's been done uh, without any question. Um, so uh, Oppenheimer is seen as uh, the sort of evil genius of the left who has manipulated the general advisory committee which votes unanimously uh, all the people there seaborg is not there but no, all the others are there and um uh and, and they all think that this is a bad idea and uh the truman administration um you know simply reverses the general advisory committee's advice doesn't take the advice and um truman authorizes a crash program for a hydrogen bomb. So Oppenheimer is seen, especially by Louis Strauss, who later in the Eisenhower years becomes the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, uh, as a real danger to American security, since Strauss believes that it is absolutely necessary the United States have uh, the biggest, the best, and the most uh, nuclear weapons. And Oppenheimer's early life uh, gets caught up in this moment of an arms race, of the Red Scare, of McCarthyism. So can you talk a little bit about what happens to the father of the bomb? Well, the interesting thing is that, uh, in my opinion at least, if, if Oppenheimer had been a supporter of the Truman and Eisenhower administration's nuclear weapons policies, and the Eisenhower administration policy was... Uh, uh, massive retaliation, uh, the bigger and best and most nuclear weapons uh, possible, uh, Strauss would have, you know, embraced him totally. But he was opposed to that. Oppenheimer argued that openness was necessary. It was necessary for the American public to understand what the nuclear arms race was becoming. And he anticipates that in the speech he gives at American Philosophical Society in November 1945. It would seem somewhat visionary and more than a little dangerous to hope that work on atomic energy and atomic weapons might proceed as, as have so many things in the past, like the building of battleships and a purely and na narrowly national authority without basic confidence between peoples, without cooperation, nor the abrogation in any way of sovereignty. And to hope that with such a course, an armaments race would not develop, that somehow these separate, distrustful atomic arsenals would make for the peace of the world. It would seem to me visionary in the extreme, and not practical, to hope that methods which have so sadly failed to avert war in the past will succeed in the face of this far graver peril. And Strauss thinks of this as being uh, a, a violation of confidence, uh, very dangerous. Oppenheimer also is appalled by the ideas that the Strategic Air Command is beginning to develop about these massive um, uh, raids against the Soviet Union and uh, then later after 49 China killing planning to kill um, hundreds of millions of people and so he argues for tactical nuclear weapons in the hope that that will sort of shift uh, the view to something a little more 
reasonable, quote unquote. And he's just running in the opposite direction of the Eisenhower administration. And so Lewis Straws uh, wants to get rid of him, basically. And how does he do it? He focuses on uh, Oppenheimer's association with left-wing friends during the 1930s uh, in Berkeley. And also there's a very complicated story about uh, his friend Hokan Chevalier and um, a story that Oppenheimer tells to um, uh, army security officer during the war uh, that is secretly tape recorded and he tells a different story at a different time. Uh, he's caught in a trap. It's like in a spider web. There's uh, almost a trial, a uh, extra legal trial, if you will, in which Oppenheimer is brought before judges, in which he has uh, his own attorneys. I, uh, if I remember correctly, he gets to witness this trial while lounging on a sofa. Um, and, and eventually his uh, credentials, it, was, it had to do with his uh, security clearance, and his credentials are uh, revoked. We actually have uh, here at the APS the papers of Henry Smythe, uh, who was on uh, the commission making this d decision. And if I remember correctly, he was the lone dissenting voice. Well, there were two, there were two steps. Um, at the end of uh, 1953, Straws has a letter composed charging Oppenheimer with being a security risk based on his um, earlier activities in the 1930s. Uh, Oppenheimer has the choice of either resigning or having a security hearing, which according to you know the AEC regulations, he's entitled to. Oppenheimer refuses to resign with the argument that if I resign, I'm essentially uh, accepting your judgment that I'm a security risk. Uh, so he uh, hires an attorney and there's a security uh, board uh, headed up by Gordon Gray, who at that time is the president of the University of North Carolina and later becomes uh, Eisenhower's um, uh, national security advisor, which in my opinion was a, uh, a reward for his work as the chairman of this uh, security, security board. And the security board, uh, in the end, uh, votes two to one against Oppenheimer. And that decision has to be uh, either accepted or rejected by the Atomic Energy Commission. And as you said, Henry Smythe is the one dissenting voice on the Atomic Energy Commission. There is uh, evidence that Straws uh, bribed one of the other members of the uh, Atomic Energy Commission to vote with him. But Oppenheimer's career as uh, an active participant in the uh, policymaking process in relationship to nuclear weapons is over uh, at that point. And as Isidore Robbie said, it destroyed him. It had exactly, Robbie says in this wonderful film, The Day After Trinity, Robert Oppenheimer and the Atomic Bomb, uh, it had exactly the effect that his opponents wanted it to have. It broke his spirit.
Yeah, I remember reading um, Edward Condon, uh, who knew Oppenheimer when he was younger and knew Oppenheimer when he was kind of dealing with these mental health issues and this lack of direction uh, when he was in Germany, was worried that he might crack up. It, it may have broke Oppenheimer, but how did it affect his mental health? Did he return to you know, the state that he w- was in as a youth? Um, did he return to physics? How did he deal with it? Because he lived another 13, 14 years. Yes. Well, he remained the director of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. He did not crack up. But what Robbie meant was that he had lost his fighting spirit. He would have nothing to do with commenting on any of the uh, the issues of, of the day related to nuclear weapons. Uh, he spoke about educational issues. He spoke about physics in general. He lectured around the world. Uh, you know, for an average, let's say, individual, Oppenheimer was extraordinarily active. But what Oppenheimer could have been doing and had been doing uh, was very different from what he did after the hearing. And what effect did this have on science? And one of the things I want to share with you and and our listeners is a telegram that uh, Smythe received from uh, a professor at Iowa State University, and it reads, I am seriously concerned about deteriorating morale resulting from Oppenheimer hearings urging all your influence, restoring confidence amongst scientists and government and its security procedures. How did science and scientists react to this very public Oppenheimer hearing? It became public. I mean, the hearing was conducted in secret, but the story was broken uh, to the New York Times, actually by Oppenheimer's lawyer, before it began. But... uh, It became a public uh, hearing because after it was over, Louis Strauss had the transcript of the hearing uh, published. Um, And it's a famous book called In the Matter of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Uh, And it was read by everybody after it was published. Everybody meaning everybody in the science uh, community, certainly. And... The initial reports of the hearing were uh, manipulated by straws because when it was published, the most damaging passages were highlighted for reporters under deadline. And this is a book that's over a thousand pages of very small type. Uh, So, you know, the reporters, you know, were glad to have some kind of uh, guidance in what was going on. So Oppenheimer ended up with very, very bad press. But the science community divided between those who supported Edward Teller, who had testified against Oppenheimer, and those who supported uh, Oppenheimer. Teller said when he was on the witness stand that he would prefer to have the control of policy in hands that he could understand better and trust better. And uh, the, the implication was Oppenheimer was not, was not trustworthy. And uh, so you have this divide. I mean, the Oppenheimer hearing is a transitional moment in science community policy in America. The, the belief is now 
that scientists can no longer freely comment on public policy issues. That when you uh, take a stand against the government, you are on the outside. You're finished as a participant uh, in the inner circles uh, of government. And again, this is something that Oppenheimer anticipates in the American Philosophical Society speech of November 45. Uh, You know, he talks about the necessity of uh, bringing wars to an end, having an international control of atomic energy. If we don't do this, if we don't undertake this project, so to speak, as the most important sort of project of our time, we are in danger of losing our freedom, our culture, and all of the things that we value. And that happens. I mean, we, uh, our society is significantly changed by the Cold War, and the Oppenheimer uh, hearing is a significant moment in that transformation and that change. I was wondering if you could talk more about what you see Oppenheimer's lasting legacy is. Um, There's a sentence in your book that reads, Oppenheimer's story also reminds us that our identity as a people remains intimately connected with the culture of things nuclear. What did you mean by that, And, and how is Oppenheimer still with us today? Well, he's with us in spirit. I I think the younger generation probably doesn't know who Oppenheimer is for the most part, unless uh, uh, they've taken courses in college or or some very advanced high schools that talk about him. But certainly the political culture that he helped to shape is all around us. He is the father of the atomic bomb. Uh, He promoted the idea of using nuclear weapons. The use of nuclear weapons is the uh, most influential uh, act of the 20th century. I mean, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki changed everything. Uh, Oppenheimer hoped in his uh, speech to the American Philosophical Society that it would alert the world to the need to uh, band together in a, some sort of an international control uh, condominium to prevent uh, a nuclear arms race. Uh, that did not happen. And we are living with that legacy. The nuclear world and everything that happened before is different. Uh, No matter how terrible things were in the darkest stages of uh, our history, we were never in a position, we as human beings, to destroy the human race, to destroy the, the earth. But in the nuclear age, you know, we are. The Canberra Commission in, I think it was 1997 or 1998, has a uh, concluding line that reads something like, the idea that nuclear weapons would never be used by either accident or design defies credibility. And it does. And 
those people who argue that nuclear deterrence, you know, has worked, look, since 1945, we've not had a nuclear war. We've had plenty of wars, but we've not had a nuclear war. Remind me of this New Yorker cartoon where you see a guy looking out the window and, you know, let's say the 40th floor, and there's someone falling outside the window and he says, how's it going? He says, so far, so good. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's where we are. One of the things that your book made me think about is how much I feel today, at least, the questions about nuclear arms and nuclear war really have fallen from public consciousness in a way that they were certainly present in the 1980s and earlier. But with the fall of the Soviet Union, in some ways, we've we've forgotten about them. There is talk about dirty bombs, of course, after 9-11, but even that isn't much in the news today. So if Oppenheimer was with us today, knowing what you know about him, which is probably the best biography ever written, what would Oppenheimer today be advocating? I'm not sure he would advocate anything because he's, in effect, asked this question at the very end of this film I mentioned earlier by John Ells. Um, the day after Trinity, uh, Robert Oppenheimer and the atomic bomb. A reporter asks him when he's sitting in his office at um, uh, the Institute for Advanced Study what he thinks about Robert Kennedy's uh, proposal uh, of a few years earlier. This he's probably in 1965 or 66 when this interview takes place. What your thoughts are about the uh, proposal of Senator Robert Kennedy? that uh, President Johnson uh, initiate talks with a view to uh, halt the spread of nuclear weapons? It's uh, 20 years too late. It should have been done the day after Trinity. And then he also says, in response to a question about that's a little more detailed. Dr. Oppenheimer, could you tell us uh, what your thoughts are about what our atomic policy should be? No, I, I, I can't do that. I'm not, not close enough to the facts, and I'm not close enough to the, to the thoughts of those who worrying about it. I'm not on the inside, uh, in effect. Uh, those aren't his exact words, but uh, I'm not an insider, so I, 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 I can't comment on that. And when I watch the film uh, and I show it to my class, I think to myself, you know, I'm not on the inside, but I talk about nuclear weapons all the time. <laughs> this course is about America and the nuclear age. But Oppenheimer, <laughs> who was Oppenheimer, uh, was not willing to talk about it. So I, I don't know whether he would open up or not, whether he would come out of this um, sort of terrible shell that he crawled into after the security hearing. Your biography really is one of the most readable biographies and engaging biographies I've read in a very long time. I know you did extensive research, including oral history interviews. Can you talk about all the work that went into writing it? I'll start from the end. One of my favorite um, quotations uh, from a writer is John Kenneth Galbraith, and one of his books in the introduction says that... Um, 
Uh, it's about the seventh draft when my prose begin to take on the sound of spontaneity. Uh, so there were many, a lot of writing, a lot of rewriting. And of course, I wrote this uh, uh, with, with Kai Bird. And um, we are very good friends. And we had written a lot of things together uh, in the past and always went back and forth, back and forth, changing, you know, sentences. And so uh, there's a lot of, a lot of polishing. Uh, that's the end product. Um, the story of um, the, the, the book from the beginning was that I think it was 1979 when I first uh, got the contract uh, from Knopf for this book. And I spent about four years doing interviews uh, because I thought it was really important to catch people in their old age. And fortunately, I uh, tape recorded uh, almost every interview. And uh, that was very important. Um, and, and then I got involved in uh, running a center for uh, nuclear history at Tufts University. And then I got involved in uh, developing something called the Global Classroom Project, which between 1987 and 92 uh, connected students at Moscow State University with my students at Tufts by television. And, and the programs cost about $60,000 a piece. I spent all my time running, <laughs> raising money. And, um, uh, and then I became the director of uh, the John Sloan Dickey Center at Dartmouth for a couple of years. So when I got back to the book, uh, I was, you know, sort of distant from it. And it was, you know, hard to get back. And, and Kai was looking for a, a new project. And we were, as I said, we were good friends who uh, had, were writing an awful lot, actually about the Enola Gay controversy in 1994-95 at the uh, Air and Space Museum. And um, we decided, hey, we can do this together and we'll knock it off in two or three years. And Knopf rewrote the contract and brought Kai in on it. And five years later, we were finished. <laughs> so. Well, Professor Sherwin, uh, thank you for your uh, scholarship and thank you for taking the time today to talk to us about Dr. Oppenheimer. Thanks for listening to Great Talks at the American Philosophical Society. You can find more information about this episode, including archival collections related to its topics, on the Society's website at www.amphilsoc.org. Great Talks is produced by Abigail Shelton and Joseph DeLulo. Sound design and audio production is provided by Greenhouse Media. Our theme music is New England Triptych, composed by William Schumann and recorded by the President's own U.S. Marine Band. Your host is Dr. Patrick Spiro, and I'm David Spunt. 